The scripture reading is from John 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd met, went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lucas. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Welcome to Disciples Church. We're so glad that you decided to be here today and that you decided to join us. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I have the privilege of opening up the Word of God with you and for you this morning. And so if you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. When I was in college and immediately uh, out of college, I was working for a landscaping company as my everyday job. And uh, as part of our job, one of the things we had to do, we, we got in in the morning, we got the trucks ready to go, we made sure the trailers were properly attached, we got the lawn mowers loaded up and gassed up and went out and all of those sorts of things. And this is the day just prior to kind of the omnipresence of the smartphone and GPS maps on your phone and all those sorts of things. I remember one day in particular, I was driving around, I think it was in Greenfield, kind of the west side of Milwaukee there, uh, and, and I was coming up on an intersection. It was 60th and Edgerton. This is not vital, but for those of you who know the area, that might be meaningful to you. I was sitting at the intersection of 60th and Edgerton. I had just pulled up the old-timey map. I had unfolded it. It took up more, almost as much space as I had in the cab of the truck, and I'm trying to figure out where I was going next. And I noticed the light turned green, so I folded up the map, I put it down, and I started to pull out into the intersection. And as I was pulling out into the intersection, a car ran through the red light immediately in front of me and kept going. I thought, what in the world? I stopped for a minute and started to pull forward, and another car did the same thing. And I stopped, and all of a sudden I realized there's car after car after car that is blowing a red light and driving through, and I thought, what in the world? So finally, I kind of got fed up, and I gave one of those little angry honks where you use the back of your hand and kind of letting people know you're there. And as I looked up, I realized I noticed these little orange flags sitting on top of each of the cars that was driving through the intersection. And I realized that I had just honked at a funeral procession. I wanted to shrink into a little ball and hide in that moment, but I was driving an extended cab truck with a trailer and a company logo on the back of it. So there was really nowhere I could go. I couldn't really back up and get out of there. It was just one of those moments where you felt so horrified at what had just happened. So the question that I've had been asked before as I've told people the story is, well, man, how long did it take you to get over that? And my answer is, well, I'll let you know as soon as I get over it. 
See, the problem in that moment for me, among other things and patience and probably a host of other things we could point to is that I thought I understood what was going on, but the truth is there was a whole different set of context surrounding that moment that I just had no awareness of. There was a context in place that I had missed entirely. And I say all of that to say this, for many, Palm Sunday is one of those dates on the, ch- the church calendar that seems to lack context. For some of you, when you think about Palm Sunday, it may be a a completely insignificant day to you. Maybe the religious tradition that you grew up in, if you grew up in a religious tradition at all, had no real emphasis on Palm Sunday and therefore it wasn't a central focus of your church calendar. Maybe for some of you, it was a big deal. You did the thing where the kids marched through with the palm branches or maybe you do the little origami crosses made out of the palm leaves or all of those different kind of fun memories. And so for you, maybe it's nostalgic. And I suppose even within those conflicting experiences that we might have in this room, there's an appropriateness to that because it actually mirrors what we find in this text. This city is full of people who are waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna and proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ, but many who were there that day, including the disciples, as we find out in verse 16, seemingly had no idea what was actually going on. There was an important procession happening, uh, happening right in front of them, and they're just sitting there honking the horn. Well, we don't want to miss the significance of this text today because as it leads into what we've traditionally called Holy Week leading up to Easter, what we find here is actually an amazing and beautiful picture of the nature of Jesus Christ. To give the context and the background of this story, Jesus has spent the last three years of his life traveling throughout this region and preaching and teaching to people. He was ministering to the needy. He was healing those who were sick. He was performing all kinds of miracles. The the name and the fame of Jesus Christ had been spreading at an alarming rate. And you find that, by the way, because at the end of John chapter 11, the Pharisees become so concerned with the fame of Jesus Christ that we're told that they determined to capture him him and ultimately to kill him. They're so concerned about what the prominence of Jesus Christ might mean for their own occupation, for their own influence, and for their own religious interests that they find that it is more suiting that they seek the demise of Jesus Christ than stop to actually consider who he might be. And now as word travels very quickly throughout this region and as news of his exploits begin to spread, people are coming from far and wide to witness and to see Jesus Christ. His followers have grown from dozens to hundreds to thousands. We find him beginning to minister from, the, from, from a boat set out at sea as people were gathered on the shore, creating kind of a natural amphitheater to carry his voice so that everybody could hear his message. We're told that on one particular occasion, there were 5,000 men plus women and children who were there to hear the ministry of Jesus Christ and to hear his teaching and that he began to feed them. He took a little boy's lunch and he began to break off bits and pieces of that lunch and have it distributed throughout the crowd. And soon, this lunch that was just enough for a young boy had fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Scholars estimate between 15 and 20,000 people. To put that into perspective, that's the, that's the occupancy of the Fiserv Forum gathered to hear Jesus, and with a little boy's lunch, he feeds all of them, and there's leftovers. 
And at this particular moment in Jesus' life, things have reached a fever pitch. Jesus had just raised Lazarus, his good friend, from the dead. And people, even those who were to this point not attuned to what was going on in the region or weren't familiar with Jesus Christ, were beginning to ask the question, could it be possible that this man is the Messiah? And now, here comes Jesus heading towards Jerusalem. It's Passover week in the city. Jesus is making his way into the city, and the conversation intensifies. Jesus at this point is being followed by at least hundreds, potentially thousands of people, and everyone in the city knew his name. On top of that, it's the week of Passover. This is the time of the year where faithful Jews from all around the region, and in fact all all around the world, would make their way in a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. According to the historian Josephus, Jerusalem's population at this point would have swelled from its typical one million residents to two to three million people. A city that has exploded nearly overnight in its occupancy in anticipation of the Passover. And soon you can imagine in this Middle Eastern town, you can imagine how quickly things have intensified. People are now bumping into each other on the street. The traffic is overwhelming. And the backdrop for all of this is that Rome had come in, they had dominated uh, Jerusalem, they had occupied Jerusalem, they were now an invading force that was being funded by unfair taxation on the region, and the Jews in this region now are putting all of these pieces potentially together in their minds. They're saying, what if this Jesus Christ is the Messiah? What if he's the one who's going to deliver us from the occupation of the Romans? What if he's the one who's going to bring political and national freedom to us? What if he's the one who's going to restore prominence to us? And so as they're approaching Jerusalem for this pilgrimage, they're singing the songs of ascent, these songs that have been sung for hundreds of years by the Jewish people. And here's an example of one of those songs from Psalm 125, beginning in verse 1. It says this, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forevermore, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. And you can hear in that psalm both a spiritual and a national cry of a people who are longing for deliverance, for freedom, for salvation, for prominence, for restoration, for the presence of God in their lives. They expect this Messiah to mete out justice to the oppressors and the evildoers, according to Psalm 125. They expected punishment to rain down on their Roman occupiers, and they expected to be restored to their rightful place. And with all of that going on, we find these words beginning in verse 12, of John chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Here he comes with this massive cadre of followers and and hangers-on. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
Now this is a fascinating scene and there's all kinds of echoes of Old Testament feasts, the Feast of the Tabernacles in particular that are happening in this moment. But you can imagine the crowd gathered in Jerusalem having heard the name of Jesus and hearing about his exploits, finding out that Jesus himself is on the way into the city. And so with everything that's happened, the feedings and the miracles and the teachings and the proclamations and the instruction on the kingdom and now finally the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Lazarus himself, the people are worked up into a fervor. Someone spontaneously climbs a palm tree and rips down a branch and begins to wave it over his head. And soon the rest of the mob that's gathered there follows suit and there's palm branches waving everywhere. If you're looking on this scene, it looks like a jungle swaying in the breeze. Then someone from the back yells out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And that word translated Hosanna in our Bibles is actually a transliteration. In other words, somebody took this ancient Hebrew word, Hoshiana, and they translated it into a way that sounds natural to our ears. That phrase, Hoshiana, literally means save us. It was the cry of a people, once again, longing for restoration, for wholeness, for identity and meaning. And you can almost feel the electricity in the air. If you've ever been to Lambeau for a Packer game, there's a moment that happens in every game, usually several of these moments where the crowd begins to chant together, go Pack, go. And all of a sudden you are caught up into something way bigger than yourself. Except in this case, this was not the mere exuberance of sports fans that overtook this crowd. It was the pent up generational longing of a people who wanted deliverance. It was a blend of spiritual desperation and patriotic fervor. And then you have this phrase recorded, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now understand the significance of what it is that they just said in light of what's going on around them. Because to equate someone with the Lord and to intimate that this same person is the king of Israel was first viewed as blasphemy among the Jews. How dare you take the name of our Lord, our God, and assign it to this man, Jesus Christ. And by the very same token was treated, by, treated as treason among the Romans. There is no king outside of Caesar. There is no supreme ruler of the Jews. All you have is Caesar. So to make this claim and to to yell this out in this crowd was potentially to take your life into your own hands. It was certainly to take Jesus' life into consideration. And notice Jesus' response in verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Now this is fascinating for a whole host of reasons that we'll dive into in this passage, but, but it's fascinating first because these people were expecting and looking for a wartime liberator. They were looking for a general, a commander. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for a fighter on the back of a great war horse. But here comes Jesus on a donkey. And much has rightly been made of the humility of Jesus Christ in selecting a donkey upon which to ride into the city. But I think there's actually something else symbolic that's happening here. If you look at this contextually, 
and historically. Because at this time, kings would ride horses when the nation was at war. Kings would ride horses into battle. Kings would ride horses among their troops. They would ride horses to communicate power during military displays and parades. But kings rode donkeys during peacetime. The significance of that picture then is increased when we remember the prophecy that John references here in verse 15. It actually comes from the book of Zechariah in chapter 9, 500 years before Jesus is born. This prophecy is given beginning in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jews wanted and were longing for a political liberator, but Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. He came as the one who was ushering in something that had never been experienced since the Garden of Eden. A perfect peace with the Creator God. See, Jesus knew the message that he was sending, and so did many of the people. Remember that at the end of John chapter 11, the Pharisees had planned the arrest and the murder of Jesus Christ, and certainly this was all the evidence they were going to need to begin to bring those charges up against him. But what's interesting in all of this is who didn't understand what was going on, who was proverbially honking at the procession. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, this is fascinating for a host of reasons. First, it's fascinating to me because it's always interesting to see that the, the, way, that, the way that the disciples describe themselves in these stories. They never take pains to, to paint themselves in glowing terms. In fact, John, in writing this, is admitting, I was there and I had no clue what was going on. I totally missed the significance of what was occurring in this moment. It's like he's saying, yeah, I was standing next to Peter and I looked over at him and I said, do you understand what's going on here? What's with the palm branches and the Hosanna? And Peter responds, I don't know, I don't know what these people are doing. I don't really understand any of this. Okay, well, neither of us get it. Apparently, none of the rest of the disciples did either. It's hard to know what's actually happening in their minds at this moment. But you can imagine back a little bit what might have been processing for them. Because you'll remember that at various points throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples had come to Jesus and said, look, you need to reveal yourself to the people. You need to show your power. You need to, you need to show them who you actually are. Reveal yourself to, the, to them the way that you've revealed yourself to us, and they'll believe, and they'll listen, and they'll, they'll trust you, and they'll proclaim your worth, and they'll elevate you as the Messiah. And what is the consistent response of Jesus as the disciples give him that charge throughout his ministry? It's not time. Over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, Jesus is responding to, to the disciples and saying, it's not yet time for the Son of Man to be revealed. It's not time for people to know who I am. And now in this moment, Jesus says, it's time. And this procession happens in grand fashion though the disciples seemingly have no clue what's going on. Well, how can that be? 
it seems that the disciples themselves had a very different expectation for how Jesus was going to reveal himself as the Messiah, for how he was actually going to make this announcement than Jesus himself did. And remember, these are men of action. By and large, these are blue-collar men. These are men who are hardworking. They're physical laborers. These are men who, are, who, who have an agenda prior to even becoming the disciples. You have two brothers among this group who are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. You have a man named Simon among them who is a political anarchist. In the garden, you have Peter going after the arresting officer with a sword. These are men who are expecting and looking for great displays of power. And perhaps they, just, they assumed, despite everything that they had heard Jesus say and everything that they had heard him talk about, perhaps they just assumed that once Jesus got to Jerusalem, they'd see the emergence of the political ruler that they'd expected. But Jesus didn't ascend to the throne they expected. He didn't enact justice against evildoers. He experienced injustice in their courts. Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. He carried their cross. Jesus didn't destroy his own enemies. He died at their hands. And Jesus had said, recorded for us in the book of Matthew, whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And John here admits, you know, it wasn't until Jesus actually rose from the dead and ultimately ascended into glory that we realized that what was being pictured here is Jesus ascending to a spiritual throne and not an earthly one. This kingdom, this spiritual kingdom that was being birthed among them, inaugurated by Jesus Christ, is what was of first importance to him. And perhaps even more startling than that, startlingly than that, they didn't make the connection between what was happening this week of Passover and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Do you remember what Passover was all about? It was a historical remembrance on the part of the Jews. Thousands of years earlier, the Jews had been enslaved by the nation of Egypt. God had sent Moses into the land to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go, and the ten plagues occurred as a way of God communicating his power and his presence and his reality. And do you remember what the very last plague was? God had said, unless you take the blood of an innocent lamb and put it on the doorposts of your home, an angel of death will come through and take the firstborn son of each family. It's this really striking, dark picture. And it was through that means that God finally delivered the people from, from the slavery in Egypt and into their own freedom. And so ever since that time, the Jews had commemorated God's deliverance through the feast of the Passover. And at the beginning of that feast week, they would choose a lamb, perfect and spotless, to be sacrificed. And the very day that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem is the day when people would choose the Lamb. Here comes the perfect, spotless, innocent Lamb of God. Here comes the Lamb who takes away the sin 
of the world. And he came in a way that people did not expect and that they would not have anticipated, but in a way that they most desperately needed. Jesus is in essence saying, if I came just to liberate you from the Romans, if I just came to be your political leader, what would that ultimately benefit you? I've come to deliver you from something far more oppressive than the Romans. I came to deliver you from sin and death itself. Well, we know the nature of crowds, of mob mentality, and undoubtedly, as many scholars have have speculated, given the scope of the crowd that day, there likely would have been some there who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, who later abandoned Christ altogether, who had no use for him once they discovered that he was not going to be the Messiah that they wanted. See, Jesus had come to bring restoration and freedom, but the crowd that day had already decided what they wanted from Jesus Christ. They saw their problems much in the same way that we do. My problems are primarily external. My problems are primarily outside of me. And maybe like the Jews, we view our problems primarily as being political or governmental. Certainly, that's a temptation for many of us, and likely where many of us continually live in our minds. If we could have a different president, or if we could have a different structure of power, if we could have different Supreme Court justices, if we could have a different governor, if we could have a different pick-your-political-instrument, then we'd be happy. Then we'd be able to do what we need to do. Then we'd find freedom. Then we'd find satisfaction. Then we'd find deliverance and restoration. Maybe we view our external problems in wholly different terms. If I could just have a family that didn't have the conflict that it has. If I could just have kids that got their lives together. If my work situation could be structured a little bit differently, if I could get that raise or that promotion, then finally I'd find some satisfaction. And Jesus comes into that scenario saying, listen, your biggest problem is not on the inside. You live in ignorance of my presence and without my love. That's your biggest problem. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, that's absolutely true of you. Maybe you hear of Jesus Christ and you can imagine a way that he could be beneficial to your life, a way that he could serve you, but you can't imagine a scenario in which you could ultimately find your satisfaction in him. And so you live your life in an in an intellectual assent to the idea that there must be a God, but with with no meaningful impact day-to-day as to what that actually portends for you. See, we tend to think we just need to be a better person, we need to live a better life, we need to have a better family, have better circumstances, and we come to Jesus to get those things. But understand this, whatever you have brought Jesus, whatever you brought Jesus in to help you accomplish, that is the functional king of your life. And so if you look at Jesus going, I'm going to go to Jesus so that my marriage is better. I'm going to go to Jesus so that my family is better. I'm going to go to Jesus so that my life is better. Do you understand that ultimately you are trying to use Jesus to serve your own ends? 
you've done the very same thing that the Jews in this era and the disciples themselves have done. I want Jesus so long as he gives me what I want most. And Jesus himself is not satisfied to take that role in your life. Whatever you're living for, that's your king. That's what leads Jesus to say in Luke chapter 9, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whatever you're living for does not serve you, you serve it. See, all of us are longing for a king. It's a result of being cut off from God in the fall. We long for that which we lack. And even within our Christianity, for those of us who know Jesus Christ in this room, which I presume is many of us, even within our Christianity, there is a sense in which we have a tendency to resort back to that old manner of thinking. How can Jesus serve my end? So the question that we need to ask then is this, what's the significance of this story for us? Well, one commentator said it this way. He said, since Jesus came as a humble king, a weak king, he proves that you can trust him. Well, how is that? Because Jesus in this story does not come in as an oppressive or dominating figure. He comes in in utter humility. There is no other king that you could serve that can treat you or interact with you this way. If you live for your career and you fail, you'll feel the weight of the punishment of that career. If you live for your family and your family doesn't turn out the way that you expected or hope, you will feel the weight of the punishment of that family. Why? Because those things can't bring peace. They can't suffer on your behalf to make things right. They can't reconcile what's broken. They can only sit there as a judge. And that's true of any other thing in our life. But the weak king, the true king, the king who comes in on the back of a donkey, that king came to bring you into his kingdom. You know you can trust him as your king because he served you first. And how else are we to approach this Holy Week? How else are we to make sense of something like Good Friday when King Jesus ends up nailed to a Roman cross, dead. When the king of the universe is belittled and mocked, scorned by the very people that Christ came to rule. I mean, what kind of a king goes to a cross? Kings send people to crosses. They don't go there themselves. But he is a king like nobody else. Jesus didn't come to set Jews free from the Romans, nor did Jesus come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive and to make enemies into family. The crowds worship in this moment, and this is the irony of this whole story, the crowds worship in this moment is sincere. They meant what they said when they cried out, Hosanna, save us, King Jesus. They meant the cry of their hearts. But their cries were also shallow and momentary because they had no idea what it was actually going to take for them to be saved. They had no idea what it would mean to actually receive that king into their life. 
And yet, despite the shallowness and the emptiness and the vapidity of their cries, Jesus would suffer and die for their sins, and on top of that would cry out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if you don't understand that he is the king who knows best, then just like this crowd, you will turn on him when his perfect plan doesn't line up with your plan. So John Stott, the great Anglican minister, said it this way, as the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, so the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. In other words, in every way that we sin, in any sin that you can imagine, at the very heart of that, as Luther would say, the sin underneath the sin, the idol behind the idol in your life, ultimately is that you do not like the idea that God wants to be the king of your life. So when we seek for happiness in things or in people or in objects or in success, We are declaring in that moment, God, what you have stated about me or what you have stated you desire for me is not enough for me. In fact, I resent the fact that you would even try to make a claim on my life, that you would even try to tell me what to do or think or how to behave or how to live. I resent the fact that you think, God, that just because you created me, you get to rule over me. The sin underneath our sin is believing that we ought to be on the throne of our own lives rather than God. And Stott says in the very same way that sin is us substituting ourselves for God, in the very same way salvation is God substituting himself for us. That God, rather than just taking mere offense at our affront, at our rebellion, at our treason against him, instead lays himself down for us. See, when the people were waving the palm branches, they just thought of it as a hero's welcome. But to Jesus, it meant much more than that. Because we're given a picture into the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 12, which reads this way. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. See, Jesus knew that in this moment, while people were waving palm branches at him as a hero's welcome, he knew that the next time he came back to earth, he was coming as the conquering king, as the one who would set everything right. He knew that the next time that those, that those palm trees were waving, they would still be attached to the trees as nature itself bursts forth in worship in the presence of its creator. And so as we head into this Holy Week, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we know this Jesus Not the Jesus we've constructed in our minds, not the Jesus that we hope to create, not the Jesus that we would like to see, but do we know Jesus as he presented himself? With all of the implications of what that means, and for some, they might just say, well, I've heard of him. No, do you know him? Because that's the invitation in front of you as we go into this week. Let's pray.
God, I imagine that in this room, as has been true throughout the history of humanity, there are some of the same groups of people represented here that were there when Jesus entered the city. And so undoubtedly, there are some who know you and love you, who see you as their savior, who see you as their deliverer, who see you as their king, as the bringer of peace in the middle of a world that is far from it. And likewise, God, there are undoubtedly some who are looking for you to be a deliverer, but a deliverer of their own creation as one who's going to bring them the things that they desire or the family that they desire or the lifestyle that they desire or, or the legacy that they desire. But have not yet God seen you as the king who deserves worship and praise and service. God, there may be those who are just caught up in the fervor here to see what's happening with this man named Jesus, but having no real understanding of who he is. And finally, God, like the Pharisees, there may be some who who see you and resent you because you're not as they expected. God, I pray that all of us would see this week as the reminder that it is of, of the goodness of your gospel. That though you were mistreated, you gave up yourself for us but the essence of our salvation is that the God of the universe put himself in our place. In my place, condemned he stood. That Jesus Christ himself took on the punishment for all of our sin, as we'll talk about this Friday. And God, that you delivered an eternal hope because you sit over the power of sin and death and hell. So God, do in us in this week what only you can do. Draw our attention and our praise and our worship and our adoration and our hearts to you. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.